This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Our scripture today is taken from two passages in the book of Matthew, starting with chapter 4, verses 23 through chapter 5, verse 2 and chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. You can find this on page 809 in your Pew Bible. Starting with Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his rock, sorry, who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Good morning. Hey, welcome to Redeemer. My name is Andrew. I am one of the pastors here. If we have not got a chance to meet, I am really happy to be here with you today on this beautiful uh, fall, maybe fall. Is it fall? Can we have hope that it might be fall? It's beautiful out there. Um, I'm also really thankful because we have a clear stage. We've been working a long time to try to get some new lights in here, to hang the speakers up. Uh, So Jory Collier, who uh, led worship for us, he's a member at Redeemer. He normally worships at Midtown. He's our director of all things technology. He helps out with worship. Um, He has invested like hundreds of hours into this building. Uh, He was here yesterday getting all this set up. So if you see him, uh, be sure to thank him uh, for all the work that he's done. Also, I want to thank you uh, because um, we were able to do this because because of your guys' generosity and uh, giving to the building fund, uh, and hopefully it makes it a little bit more hospitable. I was really hoping uh, that new speakers would make me sound a little bit more like James Earl Jones, but uh, what I learned from the 830 is that did not happen. Um, it was more typical Andrew, less Mufasa than I would hope. I also learned that these new lights are a lot hotter uh, than normal, so if I start sweating a lot, I'm going to have Mark come off and come up and kind of towel me off, so... Don't be distracted by that. We're going to make it through. 
Hey, uh, our sermon today is uh, titled Building Foundations That Remain. It's going to kick off a few months in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Before we get into that, uh, will you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who has come and fulfilled all of the promises that God made. You're the one who is a firm foundation when everything around us is shaky, feels shaky. You are secure. You remain. You're faithful when we're faithless. So I I pray that you would speak really clearly, that we would see more and more of Jesus, that we would be captivated by you, that we would actually experience your grace, your mercy, and I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and help us do what Jesus called us to do, which is not just to be hearers of the word, but actually doers of the word. Uh, And we need your help for all of that. So God, will you come? Will you be present? Will you speak to us? Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, today is September 11th, which means that 21 years ago, uh, our country, our world was rocked by terrorist attacks on New York City and Washington, D.C. Nearly 3,000 people died uh, in the attacks, and it launched uh, two decades of war and reoriented and changed everything about the way that we experience the world right now. If you go to the airport, you have a different experience than you did 22 years ago. Uh, This event changed everything. It's one of those uh, days where if you uh, were old enough to remember it, you probably know exactly where you were, uh, how you heard about it, and uh, your kind of initial responses and reaction to it. It reoriented and changed everything. Uh, And a year ago, when it was the 20th anniversary, um, I I realized, you know, I I was um, young, I I was, how old? I was 12 when uh, September 11th happened, uh, and I realized there was a lot that I didn't know uh, about that day. So I took a deep dive, I read a ton of books, I listened to interviews from people uh, who were uh, politicians or leaders in the 90s, early 2000s, and what I learned is that um, September 11th caught everyone off guard. Everyone thought, except for a few people, that we had a good, secure system, structures, agencies that were going to stay secure, that were going to help us, that were going to protect us. And in a day, it was revealed that what we were standing on was a lot shakier and uncertain than we thought it actually had been. Fast forward to today, uh, that feeling of shakiness, instability hasn't really gone anywhere, has it, right? Look around in your own lives, look around in the world, and you can see, man, things just feel tenuous. Like, what is there that we can stand on that's secure, we, we, we all experienced this in the last couple of years with the pandemic and COVID-19 exposing like, oh man, we, we, we are really vulnerable to events 
happening in our lives that are outside of our control. And that can throw everything into chaos. We felt that in our church over the last couple years when things like fell apart and we could not rely on things that we thought we were going to be able to stand on and rely on. And I know from my conversations I've had with you, you all have experienced that in different ways in your own personal life also. We're experiencing shaking and we're looking for something that we can hold on to that's not going to fall apart, right? And we see this kind of like uh, as we look out, people are just trying to grab onto something that they, they can know, okay, even if everything else falls apart, I can, I can rely on this. So some, for some of us, it's, it's relationships, it's family. Hey, it, you know, let the rest of the world be chaotic and crazy as long as my family is okay, as long as my kids are okay and getting what they need, then I'm okay. Everything is going to be okay. That's the thing that I can stand up. Other, others of us look to our jobs or the j- job that we wish that we had because that's the thing that is going to give us stability where we are right now shaky, but that place is actually going to be secure. We look to health. We look to our physical health. We look to our mental health to help us be okay when everything is falling apart. And here's the thing. Relationships, family, jobs, health, beautiful, all good, all important. But when everything is falling apart, can those things actually sustain and save us. So these words that you heard read from Matthew chapter 7 are maybe some of the most famous words in the Bible. Uh, If you grew up in church, you probably heard the story of the wise man who built his house on the rock. He sang the song, the wise man built his house upon the rock, right? I know at least one of it. I know at least one of you sang that when you were growing up. I mean, I did. Um, so it's this story, it's this Jesus presenting us with this picture of two men. One is wise, one is foolish. One builds his house on a firm foundation that when the rains come, it's secure. The other builds it on a sandy foundation. When the rains come, it gets washed away. And the meaning is pretty, pretty straightforward, but it's actually a really deep challenge For all of us sitting here listening to Jesus' words to not just hear what he has to say, but to actually respond to what he has to say. Because the wise person who builds his house on the rock isn't just the person who hears and accepts what Jesus has to say. Jesus says that the fool hears and accepts what he has to say. He just doesn't do anything with it. The wise person is actually the one who hears what he has to say and does it and does them and follows them. And that, Jesus says, is a firm foundation that can withstand storms, trials, and crisis. So... For the rest of the year, uh, we are going to spend our time in Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7, studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount uh, has captivated people since Jesus originally preached it in uh, Galilee 2,000 years ago. You see that in the text. At the end of Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus finishes talking. He finishes teaching. He, He walks away. And what does it say? The crowds were astonished 
at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not one of their scribes. What does that mean? When I talk, when Mark talks, when any of us talk, like our authority is derivative from something. I don't actually have any authority in and of myself. Like zip, zero, null. When Jesus is talking though, the people recognize, oh, there is something different about what he is doing and what he is saying. He's not just pointing to something else, some greater authority. He's actually teaching like he possesses authority in and of himself, which means what he has to say ought to be taken really seriously. You can't just blow by it. And that's really uncomfortable because Jesus, all throughout this sermon, is going to put his finger on really sore spots in our hearts and our lives. He's going to go cut through all the nonsense, go to the root level of what's going on, and he's going to push down on it and say, hey, where is the grace of God in this area? The things that you're tempted to hold on to, what does it look like to be reoriented in the kingdom of heaven? And so the sermon is challenging. It should make us really uncomfortable. And at the same time, there are things in it that people love. People love what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount because he say, says things like, love your enemies. Judge not, lest you be judged. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Gandhi once said that if Christianity meant living by what he thought the Sermon on the Mount meant, then he would gladly call himself a Christian. And I, I, I've heard a lot of people who burnt out by the church don't really want anything to do with uh, institutional organizational Christianity, and they'll say, man, I love Jesus. I love what he has to say in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm really skeptical about you know, everything else that is going on in Christianity, but if we could just live by what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount, then things would be okay. The, the problem with that is that this sermon isn't just a set of universal ideals that if we could just like get it together... If we could just love our enemies really well, then everything would be okay. Jesus is actually making really deep claims about who he is, the kingdom that he is inaugurating and bringing into the world, and what life in that kingdom looks like. It's not just a political platform that needs to be universally embraced. It is his declaration that the kingdom of God is breaking into the world, and this is what life looks like in the kingdom. And so why, uh, why, why spend the next few months uh, talking about Sermon on the Mount? Uh, when I look out at this room, I see like so many different things. I see um, energy, I see potential, I see zeal, I see desire to know God, to follow God, to make a difference in our community, to experience deep community and like uh, all, all sorts of like, okay, like, well, how do we actually do that? I, I also see like a lot of hurt uh, in this room, a lot of exhaustion, a lot of wondering like, man, like, what's, what's going what's gonna to happen next? Like, how do I know which way is up? What am I supposed to do right now in my life? 
And so we find ourselves in this place where a lot of ways in personal lives and our church, um, we're building. We're building something. And if we're building something, it's really, really essential that we have the right foundation to build on, that we have a foundation that is actually going to last, that's actually going to withstand storms. And Jesus, in this sermon, says that he is and has the foundation for us. So my goal today is just to kick off the next few months and give an overview of the Sermon on the Mount. Is there anyone in here who loves Zillow? I love like scrolling through Zillow and looking at houses that I can never afford. Um, you know, it's like, what's for sale on Mission Hills right now? Oh man, look at that. That's amazing. You can get like an overview of this is when the house was built. Uh, this is like all the features that come with it. Here are pictures of all the rooms, the backyard. Look at that. That's amazing. And the point of Zillow, other than like for, you know, those of us who love to look around and dream of something um, that maybe we'll never ever have. The point of it is so that those of us who are looking for a house can actually have a big picture overview of what they're getting into. To actually know if you want to buy the house, you have to go into the house, you have to check out each room, you have to sit in it, you have to picture what it would look like uh, to live in it. But before you do that, it's really helpful to get, to get like a big picture orientation of what you're getting into. So my goal today is to give the Zillow overview of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll look at the rooms, but we're not going to go into them and look in much detail. We're just going to try to figure out, okay, what's going on? What is Jesus doing? Uh, what's the background that we need to know? So that over the next few months, as we go in and explore the rooms and sit down and try out the furniture, we'll actually have a sense of how everything fits together. And in addition to that, I want to start at the end of the sermon. That's why we read the conclusion to the sermon, because Jesus does not just leave us with, all right, now that you got that, you know, let that reorient the way that you think about things and just go on your way. Jesus is going to give a real call to respond to him. Not just to say, oh man, loving your enemies, what a great concept. It would be great if we, if we could do that. Oh man, forgiveness, giving to the needy giving ourselves to prayer. Great ideas. Wouldn't it be great if we did that? Je Jesus says, hey, actually, that's a foolish response. The wise way to listen to what Jesus has to say is to hear and then to do. So as we kick off, I want to challenge you, as you're listening, to think about, hey, what, what are ways... I, I'm not just challenged by Jesus in my heart and in my mind, but how is this actually challenging me by the grace of God to change the way that I live, to change the way that I interact with people and then take steps to do it? So challenge at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Zillow overview, let's go. 
context. Um, to understand the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand what is going on inside of the Gospel of Matthew. Each Gospel has a slightly different emphasis in the way that they talk about Jesus and the way they present Jesus. Mark likes to highlight Jesus's action, so it's a very action-oriented book. Jesus goes and does this. Jesus goes and does that. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew is highlighting and focusing on the teaching of Jesus and showing how Jesus brings to fulfillment all of God's promises in the Old Testament. That's the most important theme in Matthew leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, the idea of Jesus as the one who is bringing to fulfillment all of God's promises. So in Matthew chapters one through four, seven times you're gonna have Matthew quoting and saying that this thing that happened in Jesus's life or ministry happened in order to fulfill something from the Old Testament. Let me just read a couple to you. You don't have to uh, turn there. But in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 22, you see all of this took place to what? Fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Right off the bat, you see something about who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who fulfills this promise that God is going to dwell physically among his people. Chapter 2, verse 15. Um, the, after Jesus is born, his parents take him to Egypt to escape from Herod, who is looking to kill him, uh, and remain there in Egypt until the death of Herod. Why? This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And that happens over and over and over again um, in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is the one who's bringing to fulfillment the words that the Lord has spoken. But he's not just fulfilling. Matthew is also making statements about Jesus's identity. So, in Matthew chapter 1, you are presented with a really long genealogy. What's the point of that genealogy? It's to show you that Jesus is a new David who is sitting on the throne of God and bringing and inaugurating a new kingdom into the world that will last forever. In Matthew chapter 4, you see Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And immediately, people who were in that world would have thought of stories in the Old Testament of Satan tempting Adam, Eve, in the Garden of Eden. What happened back then? They were faithless. They succumbed to temptation. And as a result, the world is cursed. God says, I'm going to bring a redeemer to rescue the world. He calls out this people, Israel, to be his people, to bring forward his promises into the world. And then what happens with them? They're unable to do it. They fail. They are faithless over and over and over again. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus in the wilderness, just like Israel, in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. Is he faithless? No, he's faithful, he overcomes, and by overcoming, he is actually bringing and inaugurating a new kingdom into the world that's going to push back the forces of darkness and actually um, bring to realization the rule of God inside of the world. So Matthew is, is like making crazy claims about who Jesus is. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a wise man or a rabbi. He's the one who's bringing God's salvation to the world. He's the one who's bringing God's light to the world. He's the one who's sitting on the throne, bringing a kingdom, and uh, is going to change and reorient everything inside of the world. 
And there are three aspects that's really important for us to remember as we hear this idea of fulfillment as we approach the Sermon on the Mount. For Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament means, number one, he came to fulfill the requirements of God's holy standard by living his life in perfect obedience to God's character, which is perfect righteousness, and God's ways, which is God's justice. So Jesus comes to bring together to fulfill righteousness and justice the way that people originally should have but have always been unable to Jesus is the faithful one. He brings to fulfillment the purposes of God in humanity. Number two, what does it mean when Jesus is fulfilling scripture? He's fulfilling specific promises that God has made concerning the Messiah who would come to bring God's salvation into the world. So if you were here earlier this year, last year, as we're preaching through the book of Isaiah, um, all throughout Isaiah, you see pointing forward to one who's going to come and bring light and darkness, who's going to bear his people's sins, who's going to heal his people's wounds, who's going to open up the kingdom of God, not just to this tiny little geographic place, but to all the world. And Matthew is saying, it's this Jesus who is that long-promised Messiah. And then finally, aspect number three, Jesus is going to bring to completion the work that God started in the Old Testament. So when we think about fulfillment, a lot of times we'll think like uh, prediction and then the thing that got predicted happened. So today is football, like for, for Sunday football's back, right? Chiefs are going to win. It's going to be amazing. It's great. I am predicting right now that the Chiefs will beat the Cardinals and it's going to be amazing. When we approach the Old Testament, a lot of times we kind of like think about fulfillment in those terms, like I predict this is going to happen, therefore we have to look to see if that thing actually happened. Um, the Old Testament is more, um, less that and more how a wedding fulfills an engagement. Do you get the difference between that? When uh, a couple gets engaged, their goal is not to stay engaged forever. That's horrible. No one wants that, right? You have to actually bring the engagement to the point of fulfillment that was always intended. So weddings fulfill the original promises of an engagement. They bring to fruition. They bring to realization. So when the Bible talks about Jesus fulfilling promises that God made, it's more that. He's bringing to realization the things that God promised thousands of years ago in and through his life. And so the question is that we should all be answering is, man, who can do all of that? Like there's no human who can be perfectly faithful to God. There's no human who can bring to fulfillment everything that God has said he would do. It has to be someone who is God and who is human, which Matthew has already tipped us off. Hey, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, the one who is fulfilling everything that God said he would do. So it's with all of that kind of ringing in our ears that Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee preaching. And you can see kind of the content of what he was preaching in chapter four, verse 17. It's pretty simple. Uh, he goes out and says, repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then what we heard read earlier, uh, 4.23 following, gives us a little bit more about what was happening when Jesus goes teaching and preaching. He's going around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, which is the good news that God is ruling. What does it look like when God is ruling? It looks like things being put right. It looks like healing of disease and affliction. And Jesus is magnetic. There are people coming from everywhere to listen to what he has to say. That's what you see at the end of uh, chapter four. Great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, which means the region of 10 cities, from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So what Matthew is saying is people are coming from north, south, east, west, inside Israel, outside Israel. Everyone hears about this man, Jesus, who's talking about the kingdom of God, talking about what it looks like when God rules among his people and they want want to hear more. So to rightly situate and understand the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which we will talk about for the next three months, we have to remember that Jesus is the one who in his life, in his ministry, is fulfilling Old Testament expectations of a time when God would work redemption and salvation for his people and for the world. You cannot separate Jesus's teaching from Jesus's identity, the fact that he is God with us, or Jesus's work, which as Matthew's gospel unfolds, we'll see is redemption through his life, death, and resurrection. So there's all the expectations, there's all the background, there's all the um, things that you need to know about what's going on around the Sermon on the Mount. Let me now actually take you inside and give just a big picture overview of what Jesus is going to say in the sermon. And in it, he's going to want to reorient the ways that you think about relating to God and what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom here on earth. Jesus begins by giving a kind of succinct overview of the value system, um, the virtues, the characteristics that mark the people inside the kingdom. And... For the people in Jesus's day, um, it would have been pretty upside down, backwards, and shocking because Jesus opens his mouth and says, hey, do you want to know the kind of people who inherit the kingdom of heaven? It is the poor in spirit. It's the people who have nothing to offer. Which, you know, if we grew up in church and uh, believe in total depravity, you're like, oh, yeah, totally, that's me. I got it. Um, but, like, when your pride is actually confronted and you actually realize, oh, I, I bring nothing to the table and I'm wholly reliant on the grace of God, that's what Jesus is talking about here to talk about being poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer, there's nothing impressive about me. And Jesus says, yeah. The kingdom belongs to you. Blessed are those who mourn, he says. Blessed are the meek, not the loud, not the self-promoters. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then, in case you're getting too idealistic and being like, oh man, yes, peacemakers. If we could all just be peacemakers, everything would be okay. Jesus follows up peacemaking with, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Do you want to know who's blessed? Do you want to know who the kingdom belongs to? Do you want to know what the people who inhabit the kingdom look like? They look like that. Not impressive, not much to offer, sad, beat up, wholly dependent upon the grace of God. The kingdom, Jesus says, belongs to them. And then he goes on to say, if those virtues, if those beatitudes do not exist in the life of discipleship, then there's a good chance that you actually aren't inside the kingdom. He's going to tell a story about salt losing its saltiness, about light being hidden underneath a basket in a dark place. And the point of that is, hey, salt that is not salty is not salt, And light that does not light up darkness is not light. So if you are lacking these virtues that mark the kingdom of heaven, are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? It is a direct challenge. Jesus then goes on to outline the ways of the kingdom as he defines them, outlined in his teaching. He's going to talk about the ways to true greatness, to true righteousness inside the kingdom. He's going to contrast that with the way of the Pharisees. And he's going to say crazy things like, hey, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to be greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is impossible. They're the most righteous of the righteous. They're the best of the best. And Jesus is saying, Hey, let me give you a different definition of righteousness, one that trusts wholly in me, that rests wholly in me. And do you want to be great in the kingdom? You don't become great by promoting yourself, by proving and showing your righteousness. You become great by hearing my word and teaching others to do it. Greatness in the kingdom looks like hearing and doing hearing and responding. And then he's going to go on in the next section in the back half of Matthew chapter 5, and he's going to talk about what it means to embody a greater righteousness than that that the Pharisees have to offer. And he's going to start by warning us against six strongholds that are in all of our hearts, six sins self-sufficient attitudes, and they are anger, which is the spirit of murder, lust, disregard for the marriage covenant, false commitment, which is the spirit of manipulation, self-promotion, retaliation, which is the spirit of revenge instead of forgiveness, and refusing to love. And not just love the people that you like, who you're close to, but a refusal to love your enemies. And he says, all of these are things that we have inside of us that we are going to experience, and they stand in the way of inheriting the kingdom of heaven. He'll go on from there and give several 
practices, ways to combat uh, those strongholds by his grace. He's really insistent that we do these things, not to be seen by others, but do them before him in quiet, in private. They are giving to the needy, prayer, forgiveness, fasting, and resting in faith that God will provide everything that we need. And remember, this is just a Zillow flyover. We're going to talk a lot more in detail about all of these things in the next few months. So after talking about that, after giving this greater righteousness, the ways that stand in the way of uh, living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, practices to pursue cultivating these virtues of the Beatitudes, he ends in this final section uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, dealing with the difficulties that will come up among those who respond to his call and seek to orient their lives around his values and his ways. And Jesus is going to invite everyone who wants to follow him not to participate in judgment. Judge not, lest you be judged. To not give up in the pursuit of God and to understand that this pursuit will be costly throughout every single season of life. That's all in chapter seven, and we'll get there later. And at the close of this sermon, after Jesus outlines, hey, these are the virtues, the characteristics of the kingdom. Here's what stands in the way. Here are ways that you combat them. He ends with this parable that we already heard, read at the beginning, um, where Jesus likens those who hear and obey his teachings to a person who's built their house on a sure and lasting foundation that cannot be shaken. Uh, and I'm just going to read, uh, read those verses again. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Again, this is the conclusion of everything that Jesus is going to challenge and confront us with throughout the sermon. Everyone then, Jesus says, who hears these words of mine in the Sermon on the Mount and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So Jesus lives uh, in ancient Israel, ancient Galilee, 2,000 years ago. It's a pretty harsh landscape. Uh, There are a lot of desert regions and environments. It's really dry throughout most of the year. And it's kind of divided up into high places that are a little bit more secure and low places, which they call wadis, uh, which for most of the year uh, is fine, right? It's pretty level. It's pretty flat. um, It's not totally secure, but like it's not going to go anywhere. The problem is during the rainy season, these wadis flood like crazy. And so when it rains, there's nothing to stop everything in its path from getting totally washed away. So you don't build a house in the sand. They don't have technology like we do where we can drill down and sink and build foundations. They're entirely dependent upon the material that they're building on. And so Jesus is setting up a really ridiculous situation. He's saying, hey, anyone who builds a house knows you don't build your house down in the flash floodplain. 
Sure, it's going to be okay most of the year, but you know that the storms are going to come, and when the storm comes, when the rain comes, when the wind comes, it's going to destroy and wash everything away. To do that would be completely foolish. And so Jesus is challenging you, challenging me, challenging all of us not to be like that foolish person and build whatever it is that we're building, build our life, build our house on unstable ground. And again, notice how he defines the rock, a sure, stable foundation. Everyone who hears these words of mine and what? Does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus assumes that the way of wisdom is not just the way of hearing, saying, oh, that sounds nice, and then going on your own way. He assumes, he tells us, that the way of wisdom, the way of a firm foundation, is built wholly on trust in his word and then living like what he says is actually true and actually matters. So there are going to be two main temptations that we're going to face uh, kind of every day, but especially as we go through this sermon. Some of us are going to hear that and are going to hear Jesus saying, oh, it's, 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 it's the people who hear and do. And we're going to focus on the do. And we're going to say like, if, okay, I have to do everything that Jesus says. And if I don't do what Jesus says, then there's a good chance I'm not salt and I'm not in the kingdom. So I have to work really, really hard to do everything, which is the way of legalism, right? And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying do so that you can enter the kingdom. He's saying, hey, if you, by grace, are a part of my kingdom, this is the way that we live here. This is the way that we structure and order our house. It's not do so that you enter. It is welcome in. Here is a new way of being that rests on the solid foundation of God. And the second temptation that we're going to face is to focus uh, just on the hearing, right? So we hear it, we hear about the grace of God through Jesus, and we say, that's amazing. I can bring nothing to the equation. Jesus loves me. Jesus accepts me. Therefore, I'm just going to rest in his grace and do whatever I want, I want to do. I'll just go and like, do my own way, trust that Jesus' grace has me. That's the way of license, right? Jesus is charting a third way, one that rejects legalism, one that rejects license. Instead, he's offering us the way of wisdom as opposed to the way of foolishness. And he's saying, hey, be wise. Listen to what I have to say. Respond to what I have to say, which means that when we talk about loving our enemies and forgiving our enemies, if you're a person who has experienced the grace of Jesus and is a follower who lives in his kingdom, that means God is actually calling you to love the people that you don't like and the people that don't like you. And is calling you to actually forgive. 
even the person that feels like you can't forgive. It means that when he talks about giving to the needy, he's not just giving you an inspiring Instagram post that you can like. He's, no, he's actually saying, hey, give generously and foolishly to those who need it because that's the way of the kingdom That's the way it looks like to live underneath the rule and reign of God in Jesus Christ. And I think that if we do that, if we listen and we respond, that actually means that we build something that lasts, that is deeply rooted, that doesn't fall over when things get hard and things get difficult. So our goal uh, for the rest of this year as we go slowly through these three chapters is to build foundations that will remain, to trust in the grace of Jesus wholly, and then to seek with everything that we have by his grace through his spirit to pursue what it is he's calling us to do. And so the question is, are we just going to be hearers or are we going to be people who hear and do, hear and respond? Are we going to take seriously what Jesus has to say and orient by his grace everything in our lives around following him? And so, uh, yeah, I want to invite you to be uncomfortable and to do something that is difficult and costly to you because that's the way of wisdom that's the way of the kingdom. That is the way of obedience. And, 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 and never losing sight of that. this. The only way that we can actually do that, that we can actually pursue life as a citizen of that kind of kingdom is because of who Jesus is and what he's done. He is the one who has and is bringing all the promises of God to fulfillment. He is the one who has inaugurated a kingdom that can never be shaken. Our performance will be shaken. God's kingdom will never be shaken. And if we are inside his kingdom, living as his sons, living as his daughters, that's the safest place to be. That's the place where God moves, where he transforms, where he builds foundations that remain. Which is why, again, we're going to end every single service looking to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ revealed to us on the cross through participating in communion. Communion is a time for us to respond. It's a time for us to acknowledge and embrace our poverty of spirit. Because when we come up, I don't know if you know this, you're actually saying, I I have nothing to offer. I am wholly dependent upon the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ on my behalf. I bring nothing to the equation. I come to the foot of the cross and receive every single day the mercy and grace of God through Jesus Christ. If you believe that, if that's your hope, you're a Christian, come and participate in this meal. If you don't believe that, keep coming back, man. We're so happy that you're here. This is the Sermon on the Mount. People have been talking about this for 2,000 years. Get uncomfortable. Like, take 
take Jesus seriously. See what he has to say. We have prayers in the back of the pews that um, you can read to help you start engaging with God, asking if he really is who he says he is. We're going to have people over here also who would love to pray with you, no matter who you are, whether you're questioning, uh, whether you're just someone who is in need of prayer. Uh, come up and get prayer from, uh, from these prayer ministers. The way that we practice uh, communion here at Redeemer is we're going to have three stations down in the front and one station up in the balcony. There will be two stations right here in front of me uh, with a loaf of bread. You'll tear off a piece of it and dip it into the wine, which is in the stone, or the juice, which is in the glass. We will also have a gluten-free station right down over here. Um, there are two cups kind of stacked on each other. One has juice and one has a, a wafer inside of it. Um, if you're a follower of Jesus, if your hope is in him, come participate in this meal. Uh, the band can come back up. I'm going to invite them back up. And then uh, I'm going to pray. And then come respond. Like respond to the grace of God. Build your life on Jesus because he's the firm foundation who will not move even when everything else is shaking and falling. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Uh, Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you aren't just a teacher who says inspiring things. You're actually God with us. You're actually bringing the kingdom of God. You're actually um, dispensing blessing and grace. You're the one that we can count on. Um, and so, God, I pray as we come to your table um, and as we listen to your words uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, God, will you give us all the grace that you have to offer? Uh, because we are all poor and needy. Every single one of us needs you. Um, so, Father, will you be faithful to your word? Will you change us? And will you build firm foundations here in our church and in our lives? Because we, we really need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.